man, you guys, I just imagine your family just like just connected to machines. You guys are like the future <laughs> right now. It's pretty wild. We're, I gotta say, we're burning. I mean, it's funny for like the all the um, sort of the technical issues we've had with some of our guests. Like, we're yeah. getting some serious mileage out of some old fucking computers over here, dude. <laughs> My son is doing all his schooling on like uh, a Mac Mini, which I think is from like two thousand and seven. That's awesome. And then my wife was had a, a laptop from t- 2009 that was freaking doing great until he dumped a, a sweet iced tea into it. The iced tea incident. In keeping with the um, broken... Oh it, oh, it was a sweet tea. Yeah, it had milk and tons of sugar, so it was like there was no coming back from it, dude. Even worse, yeah. <laughs> that's the worst. You know, I see... I saw it, the, you know, uh, like before... Uh, uh, you know, before the thing happened, <laughs> he who may not be said, um, you know, I, I use the, basically when I go to, I basically go to the gym in order, like I literally pay for the gym and go to the gym to have an excuse to go into the sauna. Like that's literally like why I do it. I'll be like on a fucking rowing machine. I'll be like, this fucking sucks. <laughs> Like, how long does it take before I can go in there? But one thing I noticed, like, the young kids, like, younger people walk in there and they're fucking with their phones. Right. They literally use their phones in the sauna now. Right. And I'm like, you know, when you go to the Apple store, the one thing they'll never, never, ever give you back is water damage. Like, I would never bring my phone into a locker room. It's crazy. But the new phones are waterproof. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) What else are you going to tell me? That's bullshit. I don't trust it. You know what I've been mad about a little bit? I don't know if you've heard about this Last Dance documentary. You know, this big, uh, you know, basically the the last year of the the Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson Bulls. Right. Uh, You know, they basically knew they had one year left as this group. It was their final championship run. And they had given unprecedented access that season but Michael Jordan had been shelving the footage up until now. They finally put it together, and it's this big deal, a 10-part documentary series that's come out. All that being said, I don't want to get into it too much. This is going off track. <laughs> but I've been really offended by like people's uh, sort of revisionist history on Dennis Rodman. I'd be curious, like someone like you who wasn't really that into sports but knows pop culture like oh, yeah, Rodman. What, what 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 do you like Rodman? Did you like him? Yeah, I liked him and he was the first unless you go all the way back to uh Joe Namath. Right. There was nobody between those two who was actually like that I can recall who was like a big athlete, a successful athlete but also like an amazing like pop culture icon. Exactly. It's glam as fuck. And, you know, I I feel like I've been listening, you know, maybe it's where I disconnect from my uh, brethren in the sports world. But it's like I'm listening to all these guys with just like shitty beards and blue (laughs) jeans and T-shirts sitting there being like, yeah, I think it was disingenuous. And he was just trying to, you know, show and like get attention. I'm like, motherfucker, you guys are norms. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like you're norms. You don't get this shit. You don't understand just that need to be different. You don't even care 
how you get it. You know what I mean? You just like need to be independent. And when you're in such a um, cookie cutter, whitewashed sort of world like professional sports where like you're literally not supposed to say anything, you know, there's literally never been an openly gay athlete in any of the four sports. And you had this guy jacked like hell, six foot nine, 240 pounds. You know what I mean? Like, like wearing dresses, (laughs) marrying himself, you know, like wearing makeup, uh, being super glam, just doing whatever the fuck he wanted and kind of bringing this like cool alternative element to sports that I do think like freaks norms out. And even after like 20 years, you hear these like sportscasters who even the ones who like think they're alternative and then you're like, oh, okay, right. You're just some fucking norm. You don't get it. Right, right. But I like him. I still like him. What a fucking, what a weirdo. You can only be the rock star if you can bring it and he could bring it. So he brought, and not just on the, in the game, but like he was fucking hilarious. Like his whole deal was, was creative and original. It was fun to watch, man. Even someone who's texting me, they're like, yeah, but what about the whole, like, Carmen Electra and, like, Madonna thing? And I'm like, what? Yeah, where else are you going to go, man? Is, I'm like, that's, <laughs> are you talking, top. yeah, are you talking about this guy being unquantifiably fucking awesome or something else? Because I don't even understand your point, you know? Yeah, like, that's royalty. That's, that is yeah. fucking royalty right there that he, that he Guy, guy went with. from being homeless at the end of high school to playing for like Southern Oklahoma State University <laughs> to dating Madonna yeah. within like five years. That's a good jump. Yeah. I respect a person like that. That takes moxie. And I mean, obviously everybody knows Madonna, but like, you know, there was, before Beyonce, there was Madonna. Like, that's right. If, you're, if you don't realize how big Madonna was, Madonna, there was like, you know, there was, there was, Year zero, then there was Elvis Presley, then there was Madonna. (laughs) Wait, we're not giving Tina Turner any love in there? No, she's fantastic, but she was not at the at that level. I mean Madonna owned everything, you know? Yeah, and also style icon, culture icon, the whole film, like everything. She was bigger than I think people realize. I mean, I dare say she was bigger than like Beyonce for sure. Maybe not bigger than the couple combined. Could you see Beyonce? Uh, playing uh, playing shortstop for the Rockford Peaches in a league of their own? I certainly couldn't. All the way May. I love that character. Wait for the reboot. So what's funny about what we're talking about is we interviewed Frank Turner, who's English, and the lion's share of people who just listened to the last 10 minutes of what we said probably have no fucking idea what we're talking about. Oh, come on. They know Madonna. She had a British accent. We talk about the British accent. Remember, she rocked it for a while. That's true. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a tie-in. That's pretty good. She fits right in with that. Yeah, this was a great interview. We had old friend and touring buddy Frank Turner on the horn with us from his disease-ridden neighborhood, just like (laughs) everywhere in the world, uh, in his house. And gave us a, an awesome chat, man. I really loved oh, man. getting into it with Frank. I loved your your war stories with him, dude. That's the kind of shit I can just sit back and listen to. We had, I mean, that's one thing. Like, you know, I won't get into it. We didn't get into it on the podcast, but you know, with with success, is you know, there's always some people who have fucking something to say, you know. And 
Frank took some shit along the way. He's, he's had barbs thrown at him for a number of things. If there's one thing I can really get behind that guy about, I saw him at the ground up, and I saw him when he was really starting to build his solo career, and that was a focused, hard-working motherfucker who was willing to go anywhere in the world with his guitar and play his songs, right. you know? That guy would get on a fucking train and head to, like, Israel and Palestine just with his guitar pretending to be a tourist, you know, and, and seriously, yeah. you know, and things that were like, I, and I think he knew it. That's where he came out of the hardcore scene and he's a smart guy. And I think he knew if you want that love and you want that credibility, you got to fucking, you got to drag yourself for a you while, you know, and you got to, and you got to work for it and you got to do it and you got to let everyone see it. I think he was always smart about that. You can't take that away from someone. Yeah, you can never you can never devalue someone else's hard work, you know. Yeah, I always, I mean, my famous line to any time I talk to like a young artist or band, I'm like, I think that that most upcoming artists or wannabes think that there is talent, luck, and hard work, and I think that commonly they think you pick two of those. <laughs> right. That if you can if you can master two of those, then you can get famous you can have a successful career but the truth is i've never met anybody that didn't have all three there's a there's a you know there's very few there's one or two maybe that you can hold up and say no what about so and and like but for the most part you got to do all three i think yeah to an extent you have to have some i i definitely think i would i would lean more towards luck and hard work for sure (laughs) come on dude you're talented as fuck benny no stop it no, no, this wasn't a reach. This wasn't a reach for... for <laughs> maybe it was. Feed me. <laughs> Feed me. I need it. I need it. I'm trapped in a house. You know, you know that. Little kids, they don't... You could make them the most beautiful meal. Takes an hour, you know, and they just walk up to the table and throw it in your face and go do something else. You know, very unappreciative. It's easy to lose your confidence with little kids, oh, yeah. you know? Oh, Yeah. The parent fail. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, Frank was smart. He didn't make those, so he gets to still cruise wherever he wants. Um, But yeah, I really enjoyed this interview, especially getting into, you know, our uh, our time trapped in Sweden together, uh, which was a really interesting week. One of those, like, flashbulb memory touring weeks. Like, for some reason, the things inside of that week are super clear and illuminated it was like one of those really interesting uh turning point kinds of times and i'm glad that frank was there with me and that that thing i brought up in the interview i know i said it in passing but i was in kind of a bad i was having a bad night the one night that frank and i wound up in a hotel room by ourselves drinking a bottle of wine and having a good human conversation and i really did appreciate it it was uh you know, when you tour with people, you know, there's sometimes like the tour person and the regular person and you kind of got to eventually, you know, someone long enough and they meet in the middle, right. you know, but I, I really value those real moments when you just find another person and get to be raw with them. Yeah, you know? no, that's, that's immense, dude. I love it. So without further ado, let's listen to it. Very okay, good. great. Excellent. Um, hey, I'm just gonna close hey the door Frank. And the- <laughs> hey, buddy. How are you? Oh, you know, just hanging out. 
<laughs> it's like I, I, I've been saying to people, it's a bit like the first couple of days after you get back from tour forever. Yeah, forever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good- it's just... Yeah, it's like we just got back and, and it's like it constantly feels like tour ended two days ago. Or at least if you can convince yourself of that, then it feels less awful. Well, there's a strange part of it. I've been thinking that people of our ilk are just kind of better suited for it in general because of the, you know, either the the self um, <laughs> the self-caused disruption that we give our own lives or yeah. the disruption that, you know, the the lifestyle itself lends to us. Uh, kind of goes part and parcel for what we're doing, which is... Well, yeah. I mean, there's that whole thing of essentially just getting used to just making do with whatever life throws at you, which is, I think, one of the main things that touring life has taught me is it's just like something happens and you just have to adapt to it immediately. Do you know what I mean? There's no point in pissing your pants and crying about it. It's happened. Get on yes. with it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, well, so, yeah. That was, yeah. That was my biggest thing, Get you know, getting accustomed to being a full-time touring musician was... Uh, you know, acquiescing control was essentially right. like one of the first things I had to give up. Just just understanding that there's moving parts at work that yeah. have nothing to do with you and you can't control and you'll drive yourself right. crazy trying to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just fucking sit tight and wait until it's your turn to do something. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have like, you know, I kind of have like a flashbulb moment when I realized this was something to be concerned about to like, oh shit, this is a, this is a fucking thing. Like, did, do you have a specific moment when you kind of really yeah, ingested I mean, it that way? Well, the thing for me that was uh, weird and led to one of the weirdest um, four-day sections of my life ever was that I was on tour in the UK. I was doing a solo tour, and it was me and my wife, Jess, was on tour. And do you know Micah Schnabel from Two Cow Garage? Uh, I know the band. No, no, I'm personally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Mike, Mike is awesome, and his wife Vanessa Jean Speckman, uh, partner, I should say, Vanessa Jean Speckman. So those two were on the tour as well, and we were just having the best time. You know, we were playing kind of like 1500 caps around the UK, solo shows, really cool atmosphere. Everyone oh, having a great yeah. time, and the news had been coming through, you know, from China, and then it was in Italy, and and I was still a bit on the whole kind of like you know. SARS and bird flu and swine flu wasn't yeah, that yeah. big a deal. It'll be fine, kind of vibe. And then um, we, so we were in the middle of this tour and we had a day off. And on the day off, the government did in the UK did a press conference in which they said, um, basically, this is going to be bad, but we're not bringing in any like like government enforced restrictions and anything right now. But it's probably a good idea not to gather in large numbers. And we were like. Right what the fuck, man? What are we supposed to do with that information? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, right, right. We, we've told us that we can do gigs, but that it's probably a bad idea to do gigs. So we had this four, so we had that day and then we had three show days. And the first, the, the, all those three days, I spent the entire day on the phone with my manager and my agent and having phone yeah, conferences yeah. and talking to my tour manager. You know how it is. Just sat in the production office all day discussing the morality and the merits and the technicalities and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, sure. And the first two shows, um, we were both like uh, 1,500 cap venues. They were both sold out and everybody showed up. We had people clicking people in because I wanted to see, like, you know, is there a significant right, right, right. proportion of people not coming? And, and people did come. And, you know, the atmosphere was amazing. Um, and, it, and I, you know, obviously on the one hand, I don't want to do something that contributes to things getting worse. But at the same time, this is what I do. I've got a contract with the promoter and with the venue and indeed with every ticket holder in my opinion. Yeah, it's well. tricky. It's a tricky situation. What, what date was this about? 
This was, um, I can answer that question if you give me a minute uh, by looking at my calendar. This this was about the kind of middle of March, about the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th yeah, right. of March. Um, and then, so we did Bath and then we did Aylesbury. And then the third show was at Southend. Um, and by that point, the kind of conversation in this country, particularly online, had really shifted. And yeah. people were getting really pissy about everything and like scared and angry. And I was getting a ton of of grief on social media for continuing with the shows and you know, people being like, Oh, you're a murderer. Oh, and it's okay. like, right. really dude. Um, and, uh, and then at that third show, the three in South end, we had about 50% attendance versus gotcha. tickets sold. So. And, and with no disrespect to anyone in South end, the vibe in the room was a little bit like last call in a bar. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, the kind yeah. of people uh-huh. you have to kick out of a bar. Um, and <laughs> right. it just, it didn't feel good anymore. And I came off stage that night and I said to Tree, my tour manager, I was like, we're, we're done here. We need yeah. to go home. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then funnily enough, the following day, the government announced actual lockdown. Right. Yeah, it seemed it seemed like the, a strange trickle-down progression that everybody had to go through. I mean, I'm about yeah. as paranoid as it gets uh, you know, as much as like a doomsday prepper that a, uh, you know, a guy who lives in the city could be. And, and sure. you know, it, it was hard. Like we're both living in countries currently where the, uh, you know, the information getting fed to us from the top too is awful, awfully confusing and usually tied sure. to, uh, other things that benefit the people saying it or, or not. Sure. And so, so well, yeah, it's, it's hard to, um, come to a hard conclusion, yeah. especially when you're in a position to, I mean, it's not like lives are on the line because of you specifically, right. but you are in a strange position of, uh, yeah. of forging ahead well, or not. Yeah, Man, you know, what you and I have spent the last two decades of our lives doing is making a living out of traveling and gathering people together yeah. in crowded rooms, which are the two things that we're not now allowed to do. I know. So it's a fucked time. The one thing I would say, and I mean, I'm speaking more to the UK right now because obviously you guys have your own issues should we say he said what? politely what's that um, um uh well you know drinking bleach <laughs> and all that shit um but like um the the it's a, there are a lot of people in this country i let me phrase this right the one of the things i think that this whole situation has highlighted is there's a lot of people who've made it their business to be furious and outraged about something 24 hours a day yes. regardless of what the world is actually doing and sure. the problem with that approach to life is that it leaves you nowhere to go when genuinely bad things actually happen. Yes. Do you know what I mean? If, yes. you're, if you're constantly furious when things are kind of okay, and I'm not, again, I'm talking, this applies differently to different parts of the world for obvious reasons, but like, um, you know, there's a bunch of people who are now furious at every single thing that our government does because it's a Tory government, and I didn't vote for this government, and I understand that some people don't like them uh, extremely and all the rest of it, and that, and that's legitimate, but it's like, there is a part of me that's like, guys, this has never happened before in right. our lifetimes. Yeah. And it's just, it's like the the expectation that any government anywhere with the best one in the world is just going to land it first time around yes. is kind of unrealistic. I mean, and you know, one can look at, there's a big debate about what's happening in Sweden. There's a lot of people talking about how New Zealand have handled it well and good for them, you know, but it's like the idea that like the decision in the same way that the decision for me to pull the tour wasn't nearly as easy as some people on social media wanted it to be. Right. So, I mean, they were like, oh dude, just cancel the tour. And I'm like, Cool. Yeah, because that's just a simple thing. Yeah, to it's do. like I don't have like a pre-existing contract with every single place I'm about to play. There's been right. money exchanged. There's yeah. a long, long, complicated. I mean, I tried to explain that in another podcast too, where there's a reason you saw everybody delay their tours, right? Because you know, at first you're you're desperately trying to hang on to that date 
so you don't have to yeah. renege all these contracts and redeposit money right. and do all it's a, yeah, a, it's a competitive of, business. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's taxing so, on that level. Yeah, but so on that level as well, I'm a bit kind of like the decision by any government to introduce a shutdown that just kills the economy stone dead is not something that someone's going to be like, oh yeah, cool, that sounds like a good idea, flip the switch. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I think the idea that people hesitated, that people were sort of like trying to um, figure out what the best things to do, is not necessarily a sign that we're governed exclusively by bastards. I mean. I say all of this, um, you know, we we yet to have a prime minister telling us to drink bleach. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, I think the one thing you could you you would at least expect, right? It's like so, I you know, I'm I'm a nearly forty year old professional drummer who talks on podcasts and shit. Like, so when I'm opening up a report, I, I realize I'm not an epidemiologist, and I realize right. my scope. And I'd like to have the trust or the faith in the fact that the people who I voted for, the people I hired for the job are better than me at this. Yeah. And I sure. think, you know, someone such as myself going into a situation like that would just err on the side of caution if like lives were at stake. And I'm talking yeah. about a government, yeah. not you, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, and I think, I think that's where the, you know, there's a few days, it seems, with most countries where there is like uh, 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 less of a, um, a boots on the ground, but more of a philosophical approach on what to do. Like, mm-hmm. like there's a, a measured response that is probably smarter in the long run, but maybe a couple people are going to get sacrificed in the process. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it, it's a strange ground. But like you said, it's a... Uh, it's never been done. So Yeah. Well, we had this very strange thing that happened over here, which really fucking ground my gears, that for a while at the beginning of the shutdown, the government's uh, chief scientific officer and chief medical officer, who both strike me as reasonably together and honest and intelligent people, mm-hmm. and they've been kind of leading the briefings over here, were talking about herd immunity. And right, it, yes. turned out to, it turned out to be a PR disaster. And the reason yes. it was a PR di- disaster is that people are fucking morons, right? <laughs> it's like the bottom line is, is if you just think about it for a minute, th- that's how you get over any sort of new disease is that you reach a certain point whereby enough members of the population have had it and have, you know have antibodies in the system, and this is a much more realistic and quicker and easier way than getting a vaccine or getting a cure and all this kind of thing. Or at least that is a valid scientific approach to the problem. But everybody kind of went, so you just want to kill everyone, and and it turned into this sort of PR disaster. So they ended up rolling it, rolling the whole thing back, and it just. One of the other things that I think this whole situation has highlighted, which is less good in terms of social media and the way that we interact with each other on social media, is that every fucker thinks that they're an instant expert on social media. And and the small version of this for me is all the people who are tweeting me advice about how to run my fucking tour. And it's like, cool, I didn't realize that you had 20 years of experience in the live music industry. Do go on. Um, (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Uh, But but similarly, it's just, it's like, you know, everybody, it's, it's like not all opinions are equal. My opinion is not equal to the chief scientific officer of the United Kingdom because yes. I don't fucking know anything about epidemiology. Yeah. So, you know, and there's just an awful lot of people who, they've sort of gotten used to social media being a place of validation. Do you yes. know what I mean? And like, there's a big part of me that just wants to run around going, shut up, just for five minutes, shut the fuck up. Yeah. And that's not because I want to kill debate. I do think debate's important. And actually, there's a fair amount of scientific debate and lack of consensus about what we're doing. Yes. I think we need to get into all of that. But I'd like scientists to have that debate, please. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, and that's, I think that's the issue right now is um, people, wh- where do you get your information and where you do trust that sure. information is, is maybe the biggest problem. 
But the one, yeah. the one thing I keep thinking about in terms of social media, trying to spin it positively, you know me, hmm. I want to try to think of things <laughs> a certain way. And, you know, even like I open up a new Malcolm Gladwell book yesterday. Right. And right. And I'm reading uh, about the the lack of communication between Cortez when he landed on Mexico and the Aztecs essentially led to the death of 20 million Aztecs yeah, within sure. not very long, you know? Yeah. Um, and one thing I always think about in, in approaches <laughs> like that is if social media and some version of globalism exists at that point, there's another rational society somewhere else in the world. That's like, no, 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 no. Like yeah, yeah, you, sure. you probably shouldn't do that. Um, Absolutely. Th- that's I mean, not I mean, a good I mean, idea. And, yeah. and there, there is that aspect of social media. It's like, yeah, I think we're reeling in what exactly is the fuck is even happening with social media, you know, as far as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's the communications revolution that is, yes. I think, is equally as important as the industrial revolution. And, I, and again, it's not surprising that collectively as a species, we're kind of stumbling around in it. And I don't think that anyone's particularly to blame for that. And you know what? I, I'm, you know, me, I'm an optimist <laughs> as well, generally yeah. speaking. And like, you know, the, a lot of people have made this comment, and I think it's a valid comment, is just to wonder what all of this would have been like if it had happened 20 years ago. Yeah. I wouldn't be live streaming shows. I wouldn't be able to FaceTime my mom, you know, and like there's in a way we're very fortunate with all of the technology at our disposal right now in terms of the fact that it, it makes a lot of this easier, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and then but the, people talk about the 1918, 1919 Spanish flu epidemic and like, it's definitely not that bad um, for various different reasons, but one of them, you know, it is actually quite easy uh, or comparatively easy, not only to tell people to for the governments or and scientists and whoever to like communicate information with people, but also for us to kind of exist. You know, I mean, I'm incredibly lucky. I live in a house that I like that I have a little bit of outdoor space and I have right. my wife and I have my cat and, you know, I can talk to my mom. Uh, my mom actually figured out Zoom before I did, which was <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know. My mom is in her seventies, and she was like, she sent me an invite to a Zoom meeting, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" Um, <laughs> that's so, hip. That's hip. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> um, that's one of the funny parts about all this. Uh, you know, obviously, I've been tuning into like a thousand of my friends' live streams and things sure. that are going on. I'm I'm enjoying watching uh, what people choose as their home backdrop. <laughs> did, did, did you did you give that any thought? Did you do yeah. some setup? Like what, what did oh, you do yeah. for that? Yeah. Well, I mean, this was a yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the main thing from my point of view was more about damage limitation than about like image presentation. <laughs> right, it was right, just right. kind of like you know, is there any like nothing I mean, embarrassing? But, nothing embarrassing. Nothing kind of that's going to like piss anybody off or start a conversation yeah. can't be asked with. Not like, that I feel like I have a lot of that lying around the house, but you know, you yeah. Just but want what to if be you sure. read? Yeah. What if you read uh, Dianetics in the nineties out of curiosity? Curiosity. Yeah. You know, want, you know, you know well, I just this, want that sitting on the shelf, you know? There's enough people watching that somebody somewhere is zooming in on the background. You know oh, what I mean? A thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And then, I mean, also, so my wonderful and incredible wife, Jess, was, she was a bit more kind of like, we've got to tidy up. We've got to make it look nice <laughs> right. and presentable. So she took care of, the, which is, she was right. I mean, we absolutely should. So she took care of the kind of like aesthetic values, should we say? And I was more on the sort of like <laughs> political uh, damage control side right, of things. Right. Um, but I mean, also, <laughs> So it was a bit like, you know, we needed to do it in the room that's next to the router. That's pretty boring, but it's like, you know, it's got, you've got to have good connection and all that kind yes, of thing. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a funny thing because like prior to this, lo- this is an interesting thing actually, prior to this lockdown, like Jess and I have had a bit of a kind of rule about not like giving too much away about where we live. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Sure, just in terms yeah. of saving us, saving a little bit of privacy for ourselves. And we've become a lot laxer on that. Um, 
you know, because of what's happening. And it's just like, it does kind of feel like I'm inviting everybody into my house once a week for the live streams that I'm doing. Um, and, you know, we've kind of settled into that and, and, and use out of necessity. But it's funny, like uh, two months ago, I would have been a lot more uptight about people seeing, um, you know, the inside of my house, basically. Yeah. Do you kind of, do you, do you find yourself like enjoying it or do you feel a little exposed? Um, you know, I'm getting used to it, as, I guess is what I would say. I mean, what, one of the other things in terms of playing a live stream show is that it's at the beginning, it's fucking weird. You finish yes. a song and aside from Jess clapping and the cat kind of giving me a funny <laughs> right, look, right. like very little happens. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, and in, in, indeed there are parts of songs that you kind of get used to as a performer over the years sure. and kind of yeah. using the audience as part of the song, whether it's a clap along or a sing along or just drawing a section out or whatever it and might you're, be. You're excellent at, exci- at inciting a nice crowd sing along. I, I didn't even think right. of that. Yeah. But, but yeah, you, so you get to that point where you're like, sing it. And then nothing happens. <laughs> like, I, th- oh. I think I have a solution for you right here. Which you know, is- p- people are looking for new ways to make revenue, right? So right. maybe you um, host a Zoom meeting in conjunction with <laughs> your performance where 12 tiered paying uh, right. fans. Like VIP tickets. VIP tickets. They sit on <laughs> an alternate laptop on a Zoom chat. And every time you finish, woo! You got, I like it. You got 12 people ripping it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but you might friend- want to give that money to charity so you don't look like yeah, an asshole. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> My buddy Sean McGowan, who's a great, great songwriter yes, from the UK, yeah. he was he did this wonderful thing. He had a sound effect of applause queued up on his That's laptop. Awesome. Next to it. So he finished the song and he pressed play. And it's like... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> He's like, thank you very much. <laughs> to, to take a quick shift, what, one thing I've been thinking about in, in regards to what's going on is like, you know, my, my mom passed away five, six years ago, but she was in a, a strange situation when she passed. She was in assisted living, very anxious. Um, and I, I often wonder in the last six weeks, wow, what would have this been like if she was still around, like what, yeah. what, what have we been doing? How would she have been reacting? And it's a, a strange parallel to, to look at. And I know something a lot of people deal with in this time is like how to manage their substances. You know, a lot of people are drinking more, doing more drugs, yeah. doing things to compensate. That's something you've essentially removed as a crutch from your life for the most part. Yeah. And yeah. Um, like, how do you think, you know, you, Frank, you know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, certain versions of you <laughs> that I've come across in, in my time. Like, how do you think yeah. that guy is dealing with this? Oh, uh, not well. I mean, it's funny. I was having this conversation. So I, I live with my, my wife in a house now. I used to live for a long time in a flat, um, uh, not too far from here in North London, uh, with my buddy Dave Danger, who's mm-hmm. one of my very best friends. But that yeah, was yeah. definitely like our kind of like um, bachelor flat, for want of a better term. And it was a very um, messy place in every sense of the word messy um and you know it was a pretty chemically altered place from time to time and all that kind of thing and like and it had no outdoor space and i sort of feel like if um if i if this had happened five six years ago when i was still living there i think that me and dave either would have like killed each other or had sex or both um, (laughs) by this point (laughs) you know it's like it would it would it's it does just just trying to feel something 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's so yeah, it's, it is that kind of thing is interesting to think about, and that brings me on to like, I mean. I think like a lot of people, when this first came in, I sort of said to myself, oh, well, you know, it's the great leveler. It's everybody's in this together. And then you realize after a while, when you think about it, that's not remotely true. Not true, yeah. There's a lot of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, that kind of thing, who are suffering, experiencing very, very different things right now. And and not even necessarily that, just like my buddy Chris is one of my best friends. He lives in a flat in Camden with no outdoor space. And both of his daughters kind of came home and they've got like five of them living in a two-bedroom yeah. flat in Camden. Mm-hmm. And I think he's having a fucking nightmare. Um, and And he's definitely not somebody who's like financially suffering in the, you know, he does well for himself. Right. Um, and, and yet, you know, his experience and my experience of what's happening right now are pretty different. Um, and that's interesting to me. Um, I, I feel incredibly grateful, you know, day in, day out for uh, the situation I found myself in when this has happened. And like, um, you know, how's, like, how's your head? What are some things that, you know, if you used to use <laughs> something else as a crutch, like, what are the kinds of things you're doing to, you know, relax yourself after you read the news or, yeah. uh, well, or, or calm down at night and just be able to take a minute and, and tune out and relax? Like, what kind of stuff are you using to do that? Um, well, I mean, it's... It's a funny old thing. Like, I mean, first of all, I, I do still drink, and, and like, right. um, uh, you know, we've had some. We definitely sort of. My wife and I have got into a habit of like trying to, ha- to have like at least two days a week where we don't drink because yes. otherwise you just get shit faced every day. Same, um, yeah. and <laughs> which is 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 not brilliant. So we, we've been working on that kind of thing. I, I ter- I'm trying. It's not, not dumb, re- Frank. It, it, no, I mean, no, it's, no, it's no, not no. brilliant, but it, but it's you know seven days a week is worse than five. So yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, um, it's better. It's Better. But uh, also, like, I mean, um, I'm, I'm trying not to read the news all that much, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like, I tend to kind of scan the headlines on the BBC most days to see if there's anything I really need to know, you know. But at the end of the day, I sort of feel like there's not masses of use in me being a news junkie right now. And historically, you know, uh, that kind of thing has not been great for my own mental health, being glued to social media and glued to the news and all that kind of thing. And it's generally speaking a thing that I've been trying to phase out in recent years. So um, I'm trying to kind of not spend too many hours down my, well, maybe not my laptop because I'm doing a lot of recording right now. Um, but, you know, close the Twitter window, close the Facebook window. Do you know what I mean? Don't yeah. waste your time with that shit. It, I don't think it's healthy. Um, and then I'm, I'm reading a lot. Um, uh, I mean, I read a lot anyway, but I've been reading those books I've been putting off. You know what so I mean? Which, uh, what, what kind of stuff are you getting into? I, I, well, at the moment, I'm reading the new Bill Bryson book, which is amazing. Yeah, but sure. um, I recently read uh, a thousand-page agrarian history of Russia in the 19th century, which has been on my bookshelf. <laughs> I've been shying away from it because I knew it was going to be a monster. That's a tackle. And it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I got there. Um, but the, I think the, the one other thing I would say that I think is really important is that like, um, I have good days and bad days. I think we all sure. have good days and bad days, right? You have some days where you get up, you get shit done, you feel productive you feel like you know and I, I'm, I'm writing and demoing a new record at the moment i'm 16 songs in and i'm feeling really good about the material um uh but there are days when i the, i start realizing after a while there are days when i wasn't productive when i was really down about everything and i get really frustrated i'm really like upset and scared about the future of my career do you know because yeah, I, mean? I have sure. no fucking idea when i'm going to be able to play shows again yes. which means i have no idea when i'm going to be able to make money again because that is my income um and i'm not going to starve in the short term we'll get evicted but at certain point, that's going to become a major issue. Yes. But yeah, so you have good days and bad days. And I think one of the things that I've kind of got into the mindset of as this has gone on is being forgiving with myself for having unproductive days. 
Yeah. If you get up and you're having a day where it's just not landing, it's just not coming together, you know what? Just fucking watch Netflix. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And don't and don't like punish yourself because you didn't get through anything on your to-do list today or you didn't create something new. You know what? It's okay to have a few days where all you do is just sit around in your pants and watch telly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an easy thing to forget is like, you know, it's a strange thing about this not being war or this not being something so tangible, you know, like you can still yeah. look outside your window and there's this ominous invisible enemy out there, but things look the same. So you're yep. like, if I'm trapped in the house, I should be doing this and this and this. And it's easy to forget, like, hey, you're in a crisis, you know? Right, just, totally. Just step back, yeah. and take a day, yeah. wrap your head around it, you know, you'll be yeah. all right. Yeah, yeah, completely. One, one of my other things that I've been doing, which I would recommend to everybody, is that like I've got into the habit of like calling rather than texting. Mm, yeah. So if, if it, because you don't see anybody other than whoever you're isolated For with, sure. and I, I'm very fortunate to be isolated with my wife because she's amazing and I love her. But like, you know, there's it's just the two of us for a long fucking time now. Yeah, yeah. So like, if a friend of mine texts me and says how you doing, I'll call them back. Or like, in fact, generally I'll like Facetime them back because it's like it's just good to see people, you know. Yeah. Um, and and even if it's you know through a screen and through the internet and all the rest of it, like in, in a normal day on a normal part of life, I would sort of just reply to a text with a text and a WhatsApp with a WhatsApp or whatever. And right now I'm trying quite hard to actually go, you know what, fuck it. First of all, no one's busy. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, just, and even if you just chat for like five minutes, just call somebody up. So like, for example, you, you know, Jim Ward from um, yes. Sparta. Yeah. yeah. So Jim texted me about something that something random we were working on last year, the other day. And I just called him back. And I was like, what's up, dude? And we had a chat. He was in El Paso. I was in London. And we caught, we shot the shit. We caught up. And it was really fucking nice to see his face. I love that. <laughs> you know, that actually that actually leads me to some regret. Because I remember we finished the tour together and made a pact to start writing letters to each other. <laughs> and you actually, like, held up your end. I get home. And, like, three weeks later, there's a lovely penned letter from Frank that... <laughs> Sat on my desk with uh, like the intention of writing back for oh, so man. long, and then it went Dude, away. I'd like, completely forgotten about that. Yeah, so that's my fault, man. Sorry, I forgot. Dude, too. it's okay. Well, I don't know about you guys. The postal service is completely fucked over here right now. So it's okay. a, look at us. We're, we're having conversation right now. That's true. I guess it's a brave new world. Maybe postcards are, are purely for nostalgia at this point. Um, mm. But it does make me think of uh, our time in Sweden, our week. where oh, the, we- <laughs> the week trapped in Sweden. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, so for a little context, this is a fun story. Because, uh, you know, it was a Gaslight Anthem, Polar Bear Club, Frank Turner tour. This was it was our first tour together. No, it was second. it was uh, March two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah, and we we played in in Gothenburg, Sweden, which you would think is sort of a you know safe place to be. Parked in a hotel, I uh, got a little drunk with our driver Gunnar Bear and uh, listened to metal all night, and we woke up to the van being smashed and, and a lot of gear stolen. Um, well, not too much gear, mostly merch. Actually, you lost some merch too, right? That was in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, being from the States, we're like, oh, you got to go to the police station, right? And like get a report and, you know, file for insurance, like everything we were used to. So we drive to a police station in Gothenburg. I mean, they couldn't give a fuck. Like, <laughs> they're like, uh, yeah, like, what do you want us to do? I'm like, ah, something? Doesn't something happen? And then we realize, like, we're starting to run late. 
And basically the plan for that evening was we had about a six hour drive to Stockholm. We were going to get on a ferry, board a ferry and take like a 16 hour ferry ride to Finland where Tavastia and Helsinki. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where there'd be a day, you know, basically a day off, then a show, then another day or two of travel and then back to Stockholm for a show. So essentially it was like five days of, of that were to go to and from Finland, right? Four or five days. So we realized we're cutting it a little close and we start hauling ass from Gothenburg to Stockholm only to get there to watch the ferry yeah. leave. <laughs> the literally, back end of a ferry. Literally watched it leave. Uh, but yeah. all while staying in touch with Polar Bear Club and Frank being like, hey, don't get on. Yeah, yeah, totally. If, because because yeah, like if, if you guys weren't there, there was no show. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, totally. I remember all this. And yeah. like and 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 then it was like uh, for whatever reason the timetables were such that there was no point in us getting on the next ferry because we'd still miss the gig. Yes. So we we end up facing the situation of we had like five days in Stockholm. Which now, is yeah, like the most yeah. expensive city. Maybe right, totally. Europe. And also, like, I mean, I, I, this is, this is the part of the story where it gets interesting because I have my memories and my version of this and I'd be very interested in yours. Because for me and Polar Bear Club, there was like six, maybe seven of us in a van yeah, driving yeah. around and, um, we had fuck all money. Like, I'm yeah. not in any way like being the fucking no, like, no, I know. attitude about this, but like, you know, we're the sport bands. Like, yeah, our, our I, rem- I remember went- what we paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we were just like, shit, what are we going to do? Um, and we got one hotel room yes, for yeah. seven people, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. A, and, a, and not a big hotel room. I no, might add. And, no, you guys were sardines. Yeah. And, and goddamn, we were all like sitting on the floor. We were sneaking past the front desk, getting in and out of there. And I, there is no polite way of saying this. That room smelled like assholes. Yeah. And, and like, <laughs> it, it was just, it was miserable. And the thing was, so what we started doing, and I can say this because I'm now a happily married man and th- this was in the past but essentially we got into this habit of like okay we've got to go out and we've someone's got to get laid because if they get laid <laughs> that's going to free up some space in the hotel room um you know and it's just it's like almost everyone was like boys lower your standards do you know what i mean it doesn't really matter just it's like whatever's gonna make more space in the hotel room and i'm pretty sure that nobody succeeded no like, i don't think so <laughs> i mean polar, so, you can imagine polar bear club being i mean literally the sweetest group yeah. of upstate new york boys that you could ever meet like like the just the last group of people you would imagine are going to take over a city with sin you know <laughs> no completely and like it's also just that thing about like you know and in, in those days of my life when i was carefree and single and all the rest of it it's like if you're trying really hard it's never going to happen you know right, what i mean right, it's right, just right, like right. and 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 i just have these memories of kind of sitting in like rock bars in stockholm nursing one beer for as long as i could make it last because they were so fucking expensive and sort of trying to make eyes with every single person in the room <laughs> and then completely failing and then walking back to this shitty hotel room and sleeping on the floor next to like trevor backer's asshole yes yes <laughs> and i i remember one night one night in particular that you and I had found a reprieve. We basically were like, we were supposed to go out and meet everyone, but we found ourselves alone in a hotel room with a bottle of wine. Yeah. And we were like, you know what? This is a unique opportunity right yeah. now. Don't to go, sit, don't leave. The yeah, room is empty. To sit with one other human, have just yeah. like a rational human conversation and drink a bottle oh. of wine. And then I remember we went to that, I fell in love with that place, Garlic and Shots, which yeah, is a, yeah. which is a literally a garlic bar where their um their main shot is is vodka filled with garlic. Uh, 
and yeah, but what a nice time. Which but isn't going to help you get laid, incidentally. <laughs> but what's funny, uh, you know, even being in Gaslight that time, like I also had no money, especially while we were there. Oh yeah, sure. You yeah. know, and uh, and I do remember. I, I don't know where you got it from, but you took me to Pizza Hut. <laughs> And and I I appreciate that, Frank. Uh, oh, yeah, that's a that's a you know I, this is why I love talking about this stuff with with people from because fuck man that was eleven years ago. You know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Everybody's sort of memories of it are going to be slightly different. One one of the other memories from that tour, just briefly, that I love is um, the guys in Polar Bear Club. God bless them, some of the nicest guys, yeah. great fucking band. 100%. But they were having some internal conflicts. Yes. right. And I was riding in their van. I was sort of paying them a few you know, a few bucks a day to, for gas and that kind of thing to ride in their van. But as the tour went on, like, um, relations were getting pretty low between some members of the yeah. band and yeah. their tour manager and driver, Trevor and I got on super well. And in fact, Trevor's still a very dear friend of mine to this day. And I, I see him every time we're in Portland where he lives now. Um, and, uh, the two of us were slightly kind of like sat up front listening to the back, the bickering in the back. Cause he and I are the same age and the rest of the guys are a couple of years. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we felt a bit like sort of, parents listening to our kids argue or whatever and later on in that tour we went we would we went down south and for, i think we played in like um vienna i think we played in vienna and then we had like a travel day and then we had a show in milan i think it was um and i was looking at the map and everybody wanted to kill each other and the thing was like i was the main support on that tour so i was getting a little bit more money than Polo yeah, Club yeah. and i was doing really well on merch on that tour i was selling my own merch and i was shifting a lot of shirts a lot of cds so i had some money by that point in the tour and in the end what i did was i looked up the map and i discovered that we could go and stay in a coastal resort in the north of croatia just on the italian border <laughs> with like a swimming pool and like a beach and it was cheap as shit so what i did was is that on, on, off my own back out my own pocket i went and got everybody in their own room and like didn't tell them where they were going i put the directions in the sat nav and i was like just trust me motherfuckers we're gonna do this and we got there and it like everybody just like eased off the gas a little bit on the arguments and it got us through the rest of the tour that's gangster that's some real puppet master work there yeah you know i mean i felt really good about it i mean like i say this place was it was literally like 20 euros a night for a room or something so i was like you know what i'm gonna spend 120 euros or whatever it was to 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 make sure that nobody murders anyone because that will be the end of the tour yeah (laughs) it was so fun i remember on those tours too especially when we were doing particularly like the uk and germany you know there's sometimes you know we did it to other bands and then we took some bands out that did it where you're you're watching an artist play at a certain time and you're like, oh, this is really connecting and this person is going to be much bigger than they are right now. And you were definitely (laughs) one of those people that it was like pretty clear when it was happening. You're like... Oh, there's going to be a time when like we're opening for Frank in England. (laughs) Matt, you know what? Those were my first ever German shows. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I remember sitting in the backstage of the Underground in Cologne, which was the first show, and thinking to myself, oh my God, no one in Germany is going to get this. They're not going to understand the lyrics. They're not going to understand the references. This is going to be a fucking disaster. And I went on and everybody lost their shit. And it was like, oh, okay, Germany's cool. Yeah. Hold on one quick sec, Benny. I just need to interject very quickly. Open Your Ears Records has just released a debut full length from the band called House and Home. It's out right now. These guys are from Richmond, Virginia. Check out the single. Which I don't understand Consequences for the things that I could never plan No man's an island, so it doesn't matter where I stand Cut the lights off, leave the engine running 
Yeah, that's House and Home with Shrunken Head. They're single. To get more information and order it, oyerex.com. That's O-Y-E-R-E-C-S.com. Open your ears, records. So there was a couple stories that I wanted to bring up. Because when you when you graced me with a couple beautiful things in your past, I remembered the Pizza Hut <laughs> in Sweden because I, I got to remind, Swedish Pizza Hut's not American Pizza Hut. That's a gourmet restaurant. Like you're right. sitting down, you're getting a tall, cool beer. You're getting some strange toppings on this thing. Like, like it's expensive and nice. And then we did another tour in Germany where, you know, Brian Fallon, who for a long time just has notoriously awful teeth, right? Like... Uh, he, he didn't take care of him when he was younger and it bit him in the ass as an older man. He'll talk plenty about it. I'm not talking shit. And we were in Germany. Um, I don't remember the city. Maybe you could. I, I do. Uh, you know what, dude? This was the same tour. It yeah, same, same tour. tour. I know. This and it, a- we, were in, we were in Austria, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty oh, sure yeah. we were in Graz in Austria. That sounds about right. And, and yeah. Brian, out of nowhere, has to get emergency... Uh, uh, oral surgery to get an infected tooth out. So, you know, we're in Europe. Of course, they don't believe in real drugs. So Brian essentially, you know, is <laughs> given like two Tylenols and then this guy just ripped, I think a woman actually just ripped the tooth out of his face and gave yeah. him again like two more Tylenols and sent him back to the show. Oh, but yeah. this happened right. So we're literally sitting on the side of the stage telling Frank, uh, Brian just got his tooth out. Give us like 10 more minutes. Oh yeah. No, I remember being in the middle of the stage and you guys were just going like, keep going, keep going. And I was like, I've got to save like a banger for the finisher. Do you know what I mean? So I had like, I had like photosynthesis held back or whatever. And it was just like, I'd finish a song and be like, is it time? And the audience is standing there being like, why is this support act playing so (laughs) fucking long? (laughs) I mean, and I do think it was like, in the end, it was like a 90 minute to two hour support slot that you had to do and we were sitting on the side the whole time like at like at an award show when you want someone to talk longer you know you're doing that stretchy thing with your fingers yeah yeah yeah. that to you from the side and then brian walks in literally like his face just like swollen and exploded yeah and you know he's a bad thank you very much yeah and he doesn't you know brian doesn't drink he doesn't do drugs so he just gets up there you know, somehow gets through like a 70 minute set still, which at the time was shorter than what we were doing. And in classic uh, German kid fashion, we walk outside and they know damn well, Brian just got a tooth ripped out of his head and, yeah. and they were lucky to that we even played anyway. And of course, the first thing we hear is, ah, you do not play as long as you normally play. Why is this? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, God, God damn it. God, is there God, anything... God, but- you're more God consistent than a German, you know? Like- God bless the Germans. I mean, like, they have no filter, and it's a cultural no. thing, and, and, and there, yeah. are, there, is, there are angles on it that I find really, like, admirable and endearing. But like, I do, too. I, I remember years ago, it was one of my, one of, if not actually, my first, like, mainland European show. I was opening for a band called The Levelers, an old British oh, yeah, band, yeah. and uh, we were playing in, um, I'm pretty sure it was in Holland, but there was a German guy who'd come to interview them. And there was one big dressing room 
And I, I, I know the Loveless guys pretty well these days, but back then we'd only really just met. So I was kind of sat in a corner trying to keep to myself. And this interviewer came, came in and he sat down with Mark, who's the singer of the Levelers, in a corner pretty near me. And I was like, you know, just trying to read my book and stay out of the way. And the interviewer sat down, put his, his tape recorder on and his opening question was so the levelers used to be pretty good now not so much (laughs) (laughs) the classic (laughs) and it was just like what the fuck and the thing is god bless him the guy didn't really seem to grasp that there was anything like no wrong wrong with the question and um and i just laughed my ass off you know and mark just looked like he'd been stung by a bee in the mouth you know (laughs) There's two things I've realized about Germans in that conversation. One is good and one is bad, okay? So at first, I, you know, the first couple years I'm there, I'm like, oh, this is a language barrier, right? You know, they just don't get what I'm saying. I don't get what they're saying. And then after a while, I'm like, oh, no, like, this is the way they are. And they yeah. actually, like, will give you the most brutal, unsolicited advice that you've ever yeah. heard in your life, like it's it's totally. it's it's horrible. But <laughs> I've, I've I've had long conversations with German friends about this, and they explain that it is a thing. People just talk to each other more honestly there. And, yeah. and as I say, there there is a level on which I'm kind of like maybe that's actually a better way to be as a society. Well, the one thing I'll give to them is like it's hard to hear, and I don't always enjoy it. Um, but the one thing I'll give to Germans is like they're going to buy that record, and then they're also going to buy the next one, and they're going to yeah, buy yeah. the one after that. It's like. Yeah. It's like they're on the ride with you. Yeah, so yeah, they, very so loyal they, audience. So, yeah, so they almost feel like, okay, this one wasn't so good. What are you going to do next? It's not like we're giving up on you. We're yeah. curious. We didn't like this one as much. But you know they're buying your... Yeah, I mean, if how many bands have you seen at German festivals that you didn't even fucking know played anymore? Because <laughs> they just put out their yeah. 13th album and it's... You know, biggest sales point yeah. is, is Hamburg or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. They're, well, they're just you, you, crazy you, loyal like that. You, you know the guys <laughs> in Fake Problems, yeah? Of course. Yeah, so Derek Perry, um, I did a, some uh, quite a lot of early doors touring with those guys, and Derek's argument winner with me. I love Derek to pieces. We'd have these very friendly, but like he's quite a, combative. A, a brilliant guy in a lot he's of ways. He's a very, very smart dude. But yeah, yeah we'd, have, we'd have these long kind of debates in the back of the van as we were driving around the US. And if he was ever losing an argument, his ace card that he would pull out, which he regarded <laughs> as an argument winner, is that Marilyn Manson is still big in the UK and Europe. And he was just like, Marilyn Manson still headlines festivals. Go fuck yourself. And I was just kind of like, I, I've, I've got nothing. <laughs> that was the that was the ender. Yeah, I love that. So I have a theory, Frank, that you can help me with. Since okay. like you and Ian Perkins are just like you know the most British people I know, so you're the ones <laughs> I, I need to dig into this with. Okay. Even though Ian's losing his accent, next time you see him, you got to give him shit. I saw him um, in Toronto recently, and I gave him shit. But yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. He doesn't sound right anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> so I've always wondered about like the British cultural cushion with music okay let me explain this okay so i feel like some artists particularly from like the classic rock genre if they're american they seem to be put in like a different light than their british counterparts and their antics aren't really like historically recognized in the same way i'm talking about say like the doors janice joplin uh, I feel like it took people until like 2005 to realize the Beach Boys were important. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and then take somebody like Nolan Liam Gallagher. I feel like 
if they were American with different haircuts, they're like a laughing stock, you know, and, and they're not taken as seriously. They're like good Charlotte. So, so do you, <laughs> do you think there's like any truth to what I'm saying? And if there is like, how could you explain this to me at all? Um, that's an interesting theory and an interesting question. Um, I think that like, uh, let me think about this for a second. I mean, like uh, there's, we're a smaller country is one thing. Um, uh, also there's a degree in which not exactly the same way, but there's, there's a level in which I'd almost say something similar back to you the other way around. Do you know what I mean? Mm, I would sort of say like, you know, uh, well, and this isn't necessarily about classic rock stuff, but when it comes to like punk bands, for example, since 1977, if you want to be a punk band, you want to be an American punk band. Because like people in this country give way less of a fuck about punk bands that we, and we produce some great punk bands in that time. Um, And they're just sort of taken less seriously. People give less of a fuck. Even like when I was a kid growing up, being into like, you know, F-Tough and Fat Rep stuff, there was what precisely one band from the UK that was part of that scene, which was Snuff. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Snuff was, Snuff were great, but great like band, that, yeah, yeah. that was almost, that was their unique selling point was that they were yeah, British. Where the British one. Like, yeah. Wow. You know, and, and like there was just nobody else um, in the running. Um, so I guess it, part of it is just, and, and it's a funny thing because, like, my music taste, looking back at it now, I, you know, I have a rep for being somebody who includes my sort of national identity in my music. That's a shorthand sure. way of putting it. But, like, it's a funny thing because my music, my record collection is predominantly American and Canadian. Um, you know, most of my favorite right. bands are American. Um, and even just stuff like, you know, um, for me, it's all about Black Flag, Minor Threat, Dick Kennedys, and then on to, like, Descendants, No Effects, all that kind of thing, and indeed Nirvana and Shellac and blah, 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 blah. And a lot of kind of great British bands that were around at that time it took me much longer to kind of tune into. Huh. Um, and, and I think part of that is because, the, you know, the American band seemed exotic and exciting and, and, and all the rest of it. And I guess on some levels it's sonic taste. But, I mean... And speaking of Sonic Taste, by the way, and I, I know some people listening to this will not appreciate the sentiment, but I have to be honest, I fucking hate the doors. God damn it. <laughs> here, here. I, I have to get, I'm with you. I, I have to get up early every morning to just have extra time in my day to hate the doors. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so what is it? So that that's almost exactly my point. Is like I feel like if there was a guy in Birmingham with fucking leather pants and beautiful hair taking his clothes off on stage and walking on cars and saying he was the lizard king and shit. I feel like you guys would have loved that stuff. That's Robert Plant. No, he was the golden god, wasn't well, no, Jim no, Morrison I know, but I mean, the lizard it's, it's, king? It's, it's, but it's a similar kind oh, of I see, I see, I see, okay. Yeah. <laughs> The, the, but guys, like, but, but, the guys who stuff sausage into their pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But right, then, right, but right. then, interestingly, like Zeppelin were always bigger in the US than they were in the UK. Always. Right, 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 right. And, yeah. and similarly, like, there's other stuff. Like, uh, I was chatting to somebody about this. I think I was chatting to Corey Brandon about this the other day. Um, uh, um, Black Sabbath were bigger in the UK. Ozzy Osbourne, much bigger in the States. People huh. in this country didn't really give that much of a fuck about Ozzy Solokri. He was enormous in the 80s in America. Right, right, and in right. a way, it felt a little bit like America was like, oh, we kind of miss Black Sabbath. Let's pay attention to this. Um, but it was nowhere near as big a deal in the UK. So maybe maybe it's simply like a sociocultural thing due to accents, right? So, yeah. like, you know, even in America, I, I could meet... And this, you know, this is a stereotype I'm willing to to let out so people can help me with it, right? I could be talking to a fucking brilliant college professor in Macon, Georgia, and I just deep in my head will go, oh, 
are they not as smart because of this? And and I, I it's, it's not my fault. I'm from New York. I've been bred with certain things. I realize sure. philosophically when I'm when I'm listening to this person that they're as educated as anyone else. But there's just like that little thing inside that's like, oh wait, is that a thing? And I feel yeah. like <laughs> British accents just like yeah. throughout the world are kind of used in this version of maybe like class and education well, and if it's like yeah. smarter music and stuff like I, I, that it's taken more seriously mean, again again it, well so the, the th- what that brings to mind for me is the fact that like it's a stereotype and it's true that like right. if you're if you have a british accent and you're in america and it makes it talking to uh people you're trying to trying to chat up much easier yeah because it's it's a unique selling point again like we say but then um on the flip side like you know american friends of mine when they come to england most of my uh, female English friends who are single will then kind of get very excited about that. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, so uh, so it, again, it, it cuts both ways. It's interesting that the British accent thing internationally is really funny. Like, first of all, uh, in a way that I don't think happens the other way around. When I'm in America, like every fucker wants to try out their British accent on yeah, me, yeah, and yeah. and it's like cool. Thanks. Um, it just seems a little bit weird. Do you know what I mean? Like, and then suddenly, like when it, when Americans come to London, everyone doesn't go. Oh, wait, check out my American accent. It's just like not that a thing you true. never do. That is true. Yeah. And for some um, reason, the default British accents are always either Southerner or like super nerd. Like when uh, like when Richard Pryor used to do a white guy. Like that's yeah. that's the accent for some reason is like well, over the top nerd white guy. Like, well, wow. one of the things that one of the things that always comes out is the fucking um, Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins, who famously couldn't do a Cockney accent. Um, and um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in fact, I mean, I'm not even sure if, if people outside of England know this, but like Dick Van Dyke's accent in Mary Poppins is the the worst car crash in cinematic history. It's worse than, some- than than Costner in Robin Hood. Uh, oh, infinitely worse! <laughs> Whoa, oh, I okay. cover that quite a lot, and and, like, and it's funny because like that is the accent that most Americans do when they think they're doing a British accent. And right, I'm just like, right, right, right. Dick Van. And the weirdest thing is, I'm reasonably sure Dick Van Dyke is English, um, and for some reason, just does this absolute butchering of Cockney. Just sounds uh, like the Bob Hoskins on cocaine or something. Yeah, it just it's it's just fucking bizarre. The other one like that actually, and again, I don't know how many people know this, but um, Frasier, which was a really big show over sure. here. Um, the 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 girl who plays the nanny who gets right. together with Nars yeah. from Manchester. Uh-huh. Her Manchester accent is a fucking embarrassment. Is that right? Sound, and she's oh, actually awful. from there. She's from, well, she's not from Manchester. She's from England. Um, But they asked her to do, as far as I know, and I might be wrong about this, but as far as I know, they asked her to do a regional accent for the show. And she did her version of a Mancunian accent. And because it's an American show, nobody went, that's fucking awful. What are you doing? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Everyone went, wow, yeah, that sounds authentic. But like people in Manchester are just like, Jesus Christ, what is that supposed to be? People get confused. They think there's one like universal British accent. I remember I learned... Uh, oddly enough, online with Ian Perkins at Graceland. You know, right. we're we're in Memphis. We're online, and there's a couple like older British women who are you know uh, tourists as well. Ian hears them talk. Of course, Ian, being very gregarious, starts speaking to him. Yeah, uh, you know, like oh look, we're British people in Memphis. Let's talk. And uh, before you know it, they are fucking taking the piss out of Ian. Calling him like a rich, snobby, southern, uh, you know, elite, like, and this is Ian Which is Perkins. the last thing I'd ever say about yeah, Ian Perkins. He's like fucking Ali G to me, and these women are just 
they're just taking his fucking pants down. It was so funny. And it got awkward fast where you could see like Ian got pissed. They were pissed. Right. Like there was like an obvious well, was, like thing were that they from there. like were they from like Newcastle, Liverpool, they, or somewhere? They like that? weren't that far north, but they were pretty far north. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You know, the UK has a lot of accents packed into a small area of the country. I'm a southerner from this country. I grew up in Winchester, which is south of London, even. Right. Yeah. And um and uh, I remember the first time I went to Newcastle and encountered a Geordie accent in the wild for the first time. I couldn't fucking make head or tail of it. Right. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was I was a teenager, but nevertheless, it was. I got in a cab in Newcastle, and the guy was like, "Yeah, hey, you're fucking bad. <laughs> I, was, I can't." do a Geordie accent as anyone listens to this can now tell um, and uh, and you know I was just like what did he just say I have no fucking idea what he just said it made me feel terribly kind of middle class and indeed southern <laughs> so that actually leads perfectly into uh, you know after what I read is you're performing 2,345 shows or so it's quite a few good for you mm-hmm. uh, you finally decided to do a live album from Newcastle speaking of Geordie yes uh, yeah so how, how did that come about was it very pre-planned and was the location yeah. planned how did that um go? so basically we did this tour last year that was very different from what we usually do um broadly speaking the music i make exists somewhere between punk rock and folk music that's just an oversimplification but it will serve our purposes sure. and in terms of the live show that i've been doing particularly like for the last sort of six or seven years i've been leaning very much on the punk end of that for the live show the live shows you know it's right. about energy yeah, yeah, yeah. jumping off things getting a mosh pit going getting the crowd moving whatever it might be and that's all well and good but it's not the only thing that i can do and indeed not the only thing me and my band can do and um we've been discussing for a long time trying to do a different vibe of show so we put together this set where we were sitting down the audience was sitting down. It wasn't quite unplugged because there were some electric instruments on stage, but it was just yeah, doing right. kind of like a folk set, you know? And and within that, like, the song choices were pretty different from what we usually do. Okay. There's a narrative arc to the set list. I'm telling stories. It's kind of an autobiography in, in a way. Um, and, you know, it's 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 a, it's a, it's a, in the large part ex- inspired by a lot of stuff like, you know, the Loudon Wainwright special on Netflix, which is amazing, um, and that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's kind of like an evening with kind of vibe so we did this tour and we did canada usa and the uk and um by about halfway through the usa run like we'd really settled into it we were in the pocket it felt really good you know at the beginning i was kind of worried that people were going to leave the show feeling shortchanged because we didn't play forcible words and i didn't stage dive and there wasn't a mosh uh, right, right, right. and actually actually it wasn't that at all like people were into it you know um for what it was um so we started recording the shows and we recorded about 25 shows i think it was oh, okay and then at the end of the tour i sat down and had the extremely tedious task of going through all of those oh, wow. recordings and trying to find the one which at the same time was our best performance but also with the best rapport with the crowd and the best sound and all that kind that of thing. that sounds Not terribly least- confusing Right. Well, and also the thing was, you know, I, I didn't want to do edits. Like, it is right. a live album. That yeah, is us yeah. playing a show live. We've mixed it, obviously, but we haven't sure. chopped and changed between shows or, like, re-recorded anything or auto-tuned anything or anything like that. So, it, you know, I, I, I sort of, for me, if you're going to do a live record, do a fucking live record. Right. You know, that whole thing of, like, yeah, retracking yeah. stuff or whatever. It's like, what? just make What's a studio album. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, uh, apparently, famously, um, Judas Priest live in Bukadan. The only thing on that record that's actually recorded at Bukadan is the crowd noise. Is that they right? Re- <laughs> they retract everything, um, um, which sucks. Yeah, you know? that sucks. Um, that sucks. But but yeah, so we um, so uh, we put it together. I picked the show. Um, my buddy Tristan uh, mixed it, and it's a thing. We were, I think we were planning on releasing it kind of at the back end of this year, um, but then. 
you know, everybody's stuck at home. Yeah, um, what happened? Something happened? What, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I haven't read the news lately. Um, but yeah, so we just thought we'd get on with it and get it out. And, it, and on the, on the, as we're speaking today, it came out today. And uh, I, I'm very, very proud of it because I think it demonstrates a fair degree of kind of depth for, for me as a songwriter and us as a band. Um, and it's very different from any other live records I've done in the past or indeed from a lot of the records that I've released too. And, and some people call that show, but we didn't go everywhere. We didn't tour Europe. We didn't tour Australia. Yeah. We did a limited American tour. And, and, and I, I wanted it to be documented for everybody to hear. And now they can. That's awesome. Though one thing I wanted to bring up since, you know, I'm not sure if it's widely conceived out there is like how, to me, at least in my eyes, how, how fiercely loyal you've been to the guys in your band uh, through the hmm. years, you know, even advocating for them to be paid in a different way, uh, you know, paid as members of the group. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of times, you know, people don't recognize the importance of not only getting people to work, but really be invested in what you're doing. And so do you think that if you hadn't approached it that way, you'd be dealing with a different group of guys by now? And uh, maybe, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's a symbiotic thing just in the sense that like part of the reason why I wanted to recognize their contribution, both presentationally and like organizationally and financially um, was because they had displayed such loyalty to me. Do you know what right, I mean? It kind right, of grew right. together. Like a lot of the early tours that we did, those guys were getting paid fuck all because yes, I didn't right. have any money. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, immediately like a good career move for any of them from right, their point of right. view. And they stuck with me on the understanding that they thought it was going somewhere. You know, um, and definitely we've had our like difficult moments over the years. I mean, like any band would, it's a slightly different dynamic to a regular band simply because it's my name on the masthead. But like, we've definitely been through some pretty tense moments when it comes to talking about sort of money and recognition and all that kind of thing. But like, just even something like those guys having a band name, the Sleeping Souls, was something that I was really keen for them to do. Mm, um, right. And and let them pick a name. Do you know what I mean? They sure. ended up picking a lyric for one of my songs, and that's cool. But like, you know, it, it, and indeed they turned down all my suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to call them the 1970s because they were all born in the 70s, and I was born in the 80s. So it would be Frank cool, Taylor man. in the 1970s. I thought that's a great name for a band. Yeah, that's but they were just actually. like, yeah, I mean, yeah. They were like, you're making us sound old, you motherfucker. Uh, um, right. So uh, we didn't go with that one. But like, you know, I, it, it is, loyalty is an important thing to me. And it, even like my touring crew, you know, um, yeah, right. there are people yeah. on my crew who've been with me for more than a decade. Um, yes. And uh, like, interestingly, like we had a new lighting engineer come in about three years ago. Um, and she used to work for a lot of kind of big uh, pop acts. I shouldn't really say who I suppose, but like, you know, she's worked for some like major league, um, big indie bands, pop acts, stuff like that. And she sort of said to me reasonably early on, she was like, this is definitely the nicest, most like familial crew I've ever been on. Awesome. And what that meant was that she was like, I want to stick with this, even though yeah. we probably can't pay her as much as some other people can pay her. Um, not least also because of the consistency of the work rate. I mean, obviously that's now a slightly different thing, but generally speaking, like there are people in bands who will get paid more per day than I can right. afford to pay, but those are bands that will do four weeks of shows a year. Mm-hmm. You know, right, whereas right, I can right. turn sure. around and say to people, "Look, it's not as high as a day rate, but you're going to be employed all year round." And um, and you know, we've got to a point now where for the musicians of the band, it's a pretty comfortable existence these days. We have a technical crew, set everything up, we drive around, we sound check, we play a show. It's not a bad life. Now, what would happen? Are they like? 
you know, I don't know how it works. Are they like legally allowed to go out and play their own show as the Sleeping Souls? Oh, yeah. Like, how does that work? Uh, well, I mean, as the Sleeping Souls, that's an interesting question. I mean, they've been discussing the merits of making a record as the Sleeping Souls with like guest vocalists and every song, huh. which I think is a fucking cool idea. Yeah, that'd be I'm fun. Cool about yeah. it. Um, but I mean, you know, Nigel has Sad Song Co. Um, Matt does a fair amount of kind of like soundtracky type stuff on his own. And like um, uh, Nigel, uh, Tarrant, and Ben are sort of on and off still in a band called dive dive that they were in before mm. i met them oh, yeah. and and like i have i not, not only do i have no issue with them doing that i'm i'm all about it i think it's cool as shit you know um that sense of people getting out there the only thing that i really require is is kind of um precedence do you know what i mean like if, yeah right, if, right, right. if, sure. if the if the if the fucking elvis costello support slot comes in we're not going to not do it because someone's got like a because you have a show. dive dive show yeah yeah yeah. Makes sense. yeah and i don't mean to say that in a way that sounds like belittling no, to what they do just, but like yeah. you know that's that's my only real requirement but like and you know the thing is like i'm the youngest guy in the band and we've all been doing this we've been a, a unit now for like 12 years including right. matt and yeah. it, matt was the last guy to join i mean we've been doing this for a long time i you know, I hope that everybody wants to keep doing it for a long time, but at the same time, you know, uh, we'll see what happens. But it's funny, like Million Dead, my old band was in, that I was in, we were a band four and a half years and we wanted to murder each other for the last two years of that. <laughs> and I do pretty regularly think about the fact that like in the grand scheme of things, we're doing pretty fucking well, you know, nobody's stabbed anybody like ever. Um, and, and you know, we, we everybody has their moments. Of course they fucking do. And everybody can like, um, bitch about everybody else yeah. for at least a solid 24 hours each. But that's the nature of being in a band. It's the nature yeah. of being in a family. Family, yeah. Exactly. Um, now, it's funny you brought up Million Dead mm. um, because I had just read you're working on, you know, some new material. And mm. the, quote, the quote I'll read back to you. <laughs> oh, shit. This is you. I'll give you one word, which is aggressive, and we'll leave it there. You know, I did a dance pop record, I did a folk record, and obviously a large part of me is rooted in the world of punk and hardcore, and I'm missing that. So that's all I'm going to say. Well, it seems like you said plenty. I mean, yeah, got, I know. Got, that's, got, that's, 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 <laughs> I'm such an asshole. That's my attempt to be cryptic. Yeah, not, not very cryptic um, <laughs> at all. But speaking of which, now that I assume you're making a semi-hardcore record, um, I know you were a hardcore kid, you know, growing up. Uh, yeah. So I just want like, what's your like all time favorite hardcore record? What's the or even like more specifically, what was you know people who aren't into hardcore don't realize the many levels of hardcore you could be into. You, know? sure. you could be moshcore um, guy, metal, yeah. you know, youth crew. Like, like what kind of scene yeah. come out of in hardcore? Um, well, so my first real exposure to it was the UK HC scene in the late nineties, and one of the things about that is it was so small that it meant that all of the kind of like musical divisions that you're talking about didn't really matter. Do you know what I mean? You'd have yeah, bills where you'd have right. Spy vs. Spy, who are straight-up Braid-style emo band, on the same bill as Knuckle Dust, who are sort of old-school hardcore, um, on the same bill as Imbalance, who are like super-fast, techie, like melodic hardcore. Yeah. You know, it's it sort of, there weren't enough people for the, for the scene right. to splinter beyond that, because yeah. there, would, there were only like fucking 25 people at a show anyway, right. you know? Um, so it was a really, really healthy atmosphere uh, and, and a really nice sort of introduction to all the different corners of it. Um, I guess, personally, I would say my favorite kind of like hardcore without any like prefixes or suffixes um, records would be the early Knuckle Dust records. They're a London hardcore band. They are still going, actually, funnily enough. But um, they the, the first two EPs they put out and the first album they put out, Time Won't Heal This, were just like absolutely fucking classic um, old school 
like kind of beat downy, but like generally yeah. old school hardcore. Fucking I better fucking, be with a name called Knuckle Dust. Yeah, yeah, totally. Except, except, of course, they always said that it was like it's because he's got dust on his knuckles because he doesn't fight anymore. You oh, see? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how much they stuck to that as time went by because they yeah. got quite a lot more tough guy in time. But um, Listen, nevertheless, a reformed tough guy is more more terrifying than a current one, I would say. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. So uh, that, but then beyond that, like my major thing was kind of like um, the sort of like Boston kind of uh, mm. n- not quite mathcore, but the stuff that kind of led up to mathcore. So I'm talking about Converge, like Butch, Cave-in. Converge, Cave-in, um, early Dillinger. Sure. Um, you know, and in, you know stuff like Acme and um, yeah. Neurosis um, and Catharsis and those kind of bands. That was my absolute kind of passion. Cool. You know, and, and I mean, like Converge remain one of my all-time fucking favorite bands. Yeah, um, still out there I, for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I sort of Converge kind of spoiled hardcore for me to a degree. <laughs> Why is that? Um, just. Just in the sense that, like, they're so good that, like, yeah. every time I sit down to listen to hardcore, I go over, like, so I listen to this or this, this, and this. No, I'm just going to listen to Converge again. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's oh, just that's like, fair. That's fair. Yeah. Although, that's- actually, what there's a, there's a few. Obviously, there's some great bands. I'm really, really into Grind. Um, so stuff like Nails and Discordant Saxes, Pig Destroyer, right. that kind of thing, I'm really into. Also, I mean, Kurt from Converge um, put me onto a band called Knute who were a Swiss oh, right. hardcore band from mm-hmm. the kind of mid 2000s because I, I was I know Kurt Little and he's a lovely lovely guy yeah, and he's, cool. you know, he's in one of my favorite bands and I sort of was saying to him like Jesus Christ where do you guys get your sound from kind of thing in a slightly fanboy kind of way and he just went dude listen to Knut oh, I went, oh okay so yeah Knut K-N-U-T they're fucking unbelievable Alex and I tried to get Gaslight to record with Kurt so many times Oh, we did one time. We did. You did. We, uh, yeah, we we did some B sides with him. We, in fact, one of the main things we did with him was a cover of "Somebody to Love" by Queen with Kurt from Converge at the desk. It was very fucking strange. And so, and what are your? um, Is there any hardcore bands currently that that you're really into or contemporary? You know, I I am I am not super up to speed. I'll be honest with you. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, uh, I go through phases of kind of paying a bit more attention to what's going on. Um, but I'm the wrong person to ask about what's happening right now. I mean, to be honest, at the moment, I'm like locked into this like death spiral with 70s country. So, um, oh, you know. shit. so what kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I've been a Merle Haggard fan for a long time, but I've just been getting like super, like the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to a lot of like Doug and Rusty Kershaw, um, uh, that kind of thing. Like, you know, just like real kind of like FM 70s country, Loretta Lynn, um, yeah, that that kind of territory. Awesome, I love that. So I want to. We got to wrap this up. I think we're well over an hour. I figured we would have a wonderful conversation. You and me I've I've had the most fun. Yeah. Um. So I've heard people talking. You know, this doesn't always apply to me because you know sometimes I go to sleep stoned. Uh. But I heard people talking a lot about in this time with with different anxieties and panics, uh, their dreams being a lot different, mm. more vivid. Uh, and a little more illusionary to their real life. Have you had any experience with that? Um, I've been having weird dreams. Um, yeah. I sort of hope that they're not all that illusionary to my real life. I had this <laughs> okay. really, really, I had this really vivid dream just the other day that Jason Isbell died of a heroin overdose. Oh no! And like, I know Jason pretty well, and obviously the whole thing with him is that he's a recovering alcoholic. 
Yeah. And he's sober and he's one of the nicest dudes and he is one of the best songwriters in the world. And it's yes. such an unlike this would never happen. Do you know what I mean? It <laughs> right, was just right. like there is no universe in which this would happen. But it happened in my dream and it was like really stressful and I was getting loads of calls from journalists to ask to comment about it and all this kind of thing. Oh, and shit. I was like, I don't know what to say. Oh my um, God. Uh, so yeah, so that didn't happen. Wow. <laughs> That's intense. Yeah, I know. And I sort of woke up being like, did I eat a lot of cheese before going to bed or something? Or like, what yeah, fine, I, I don't know if I've ever seen the Jason Isbell chapter of the Dream Journal, but we got to look yeah, into this. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> well, Frank, man, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate Dude, thanks it. Thanks for having me, man. And, uh, it's been an absolute joy. Yeah, I send all my love to you and your people over there. You know what, man? Like, once this lockdown lifts, I'm I'm gonna get. I mean, I've always been a hugger, but I'm gonna get super back into hugging. Oh, dude! <laughs> so the next the next time I see you, I'm giving you a motherfucking hug. Yeah, when Big Daddy gets his paws on you, I'm gonna let that thing marinate for about ninety seconds. <laughs> you don't worry about that. You know what? And here's the thing. You know what the sign of a real hug is? What's that? A real hug. Tell me. Hips touching. Yes. You know when somebody somebody hugs you and then you're just touching shoulders. Go fuck yourself. That's not a That's hug. That's not it. That's not it. Hips touching. That's a fucking hug. 100% true. You got to be free to the experience. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I love you, man. I'll talk to you soon. Dude, what a pleasure, man. Take it easy. Bye. All right. I love it, Benny. I love those stories. Like, I I, want to just, I mean, I can just listen to tour stories forever. You know, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it holds as much for people that maybe haven't been, been there, but you know, I always, um, there's little moments, man, that make, it's not about getting up on stage and playing to people. It's, I mean, it's, that's amazing, but like, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, well, that's the nuts and bolts part of it. I think like, you know, one thing I've come to the conclusion in over the years is a lot of people, when you tell them about a story or you tell them about a situation and they go, oh, like, you're so lucky. That sounds so cool. I, I want to do that. I wish I could do that. And I think I even said in this interview, you know, like nine out of 10 people can't do that. Yeah. You know, nine out of 10 people are not willing to disrupt their own life and personal comfort and space and security and all those things enough to even put yourself in those situations. So I think that's where it's unique is like, you know, if you took uh, six college kids who have, you know, kind of chosen a more formal path and threw them in Stockholm for a week, the kind of shit they got into, it'd probably be a lot different than what we got into. You know, there's people who are there for the journey, there for the experience, especially in those days when, you know, money is... uh, not always a sure thing, you know, like you got to hang on to the fact that you really believe in your music or really believe in what you're doing or believe in the people around you or else there's truly not enough things to make it worth it. It's weird because I was actually having a similar discussion with somebody recently and I was talking about how, like when I think back to some of these epic tours that I got to do, like, the 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 cities are like a blur, right? But I can remember every. I, I remember all the nights off, right? Right. You know, like in weird places, or yeah, a lot of times the nights off were were far and few between. So maybe that's why. But yeah, no. But I mean, I think that's where it's unique. It's like after a while, no offense to these places, you roll into Kansas City. <laughs> you know, it's like I've been to this neighborhood. I know what's going on. 
I'm going to be in the venue. You know what I mean? I got some emails to write. Right. I got to call somebody. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but you know, you have an off night, you find yourself, you know, taking cabs around the city, right. meeting random people, winding up in strange situations that make you uncomfortable and excited, which are the things that last in your head. Right. You know, if, you know, uh, a six hour van ride to Kansas City where you just ate some bullshit and you just, really want to wash your face and take a shit and then you have to set up your gear. Yeah, I don't know. You start to get used to stuff like that. Right. But the night where you you meet some local who takes you on a wild ride for a couple hours, I'd always like to say, never follow a hippie to a second location. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are the nights, man. And, li- and like I said, out of... I, I, even that that situation we're talking about, I barely fucking remember that show in Stockholm. Right. I, I know we played at the debase, or I know it was a good show, but I don't have any like flashbulb moment of it. Right. And I can literally clearly remember uh, eating Pizza Hut with friends. Right. Right. So yeah, it's strange. <laughs> it really is strange. The, but that that's one thing during Corona that I'm trying to remember, especially in the context of my kids. It's like, what are they going to remember right now? Like, and what are they going to carry from this experience? And I don't think it's going to be those ins and outs and what's actually happening in the day to day. And it's going to be like a feeling. Yeah. Uh, And that's where I, you know, I'm trying to like fake it as much as I can in front of my kids because that's like, I think the thing that they're going to remember from this, you know? Yeah. And that's like, you know, we're having trouble. I'm having trouble homeschooling my son. And I just, I realize I got to I don't want this to be his memory to be just like being constantly yelled at about schoolwork. Right. So I got to really like, I keep catching myself pulling back, but it's a good point. Like those, are, those are the moments where I'm like, I'm like, if he picked up anything in this little lesson I just did, if he improved at all, and then we're both getting frustrated, like I'm out. Right. Because, because it's not important enough right now you know what i mean like like he's not writing his dissertation for harvard yeah like you know if you both have to back away for a minute to improve your relationship and make the apartment feel better for a couple hours oh yeah yeah, it's fine it's vital it's fine it's vital yeah it's fine you got other shit to do put on a cool record that's music class you know yeah we've been doing that i've been trying to expose uh What's what's the records? What have you been going to? So I was, because my kids know a lot of good music, you know, especially, I mean, my daughter's 12, but like what I'm trying to do is share like different time periods. So like the other morning I put on um, 60s era Stones, Rolling Stones, because okay. I was like, you know, this is totally different than I think what a lot of people think about when they remember the Stones, at least you know, when I got into the Rolling Stones, I wasn't listening to that stuff. I was listening to no. stuff from like the late 70s. And, sure. Um, but it's important because it's also just a, a, a weird, it's cool to listen to that music, man. It's totally different than like Start Me Up, man, listening to that goofy right, right. old, like almost Beatlesque, like pop music. Yeah, it's like how many times can one band use a fucking vibra slap, you know? <laughs> So yeah, it's like it's mainly stuff that they kind of are familiar with, but I'm just trying to give them a different angle on it, you know. You got to do it. That's music class. That's what I'm yeah. trying to do. I'm like, I'm like, if we're planting something in the garden, that's a class. Yeah. Or listen to music, that's a class. If they're painting, that's a class. Yeah. I got, I got, I got my son to watch an episode of Treehouse Masters this morning. Ooh, nice. You that's know? fun. There we go. <laughs> now, now I got a woodworker class. Yeah. You know, you're gonna have to make Fuck a treehouse when this is over, Benny. Oh, uh, I need a house.
but I will. <laughs> I know how to build one. I love Pete Nelson. That's like my my short list of people I want to hang out with is like Red Man, <laughs> Pete Nelson from Treehouse Masters. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, maybe Will Farrell acting like Ron Burgundy, like if he never broke character. I think I'd like to I think Will Farrell and it as anything. I don't I don't think that guy is really ever off, man. I don't think you yeah, can I be know. Will Farrell and not kind of be always be Will Farrell. Yeah, my a Will Farrell blooper reel on YouTube has been getting me through some dark times recently. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Anyway, but, I'm also anyway. a big fan of Jack Kearney, who just threw us a big wad of cash on Venmo. Um, Which is people are awesome. being very generous, and thank you, thank you. It, we definitely can use this money. I, I've said that we're gonna relaunch. We weren't gonna relaunch Patreon, but I think we might try and give it a shot. We've got some bonus stuff that we could blow out. Um, if we do launch it soon. I'll try and hook up some of these people that have been giving us these large chunks of cash and see if I can get you guys yeah. on there, um, at least for a while. Uh, but so I guess just keep an eye out. I'll, well, you know, we'll tweet it out if we do get it going in the next few days or next few weeks. Um, and if so, uh, you know, thank you ahead of time for anybody that might go on there. In the meantime, yeah, we're taking, we're taking cash at Venmo at going off track. If you want to throw us a little bit, it doesn't have to be huge, man. You know, you can give us a buck or two and you can always give us another one next week or next month. Um, but thank you. And I, I feel like for you, Brad, it's more about the emotional stimulus it gives you. Like, like Jack, Jack Kearney, you don't even realize how you add to the beauty of, Brad's dead. Well, he's lo- these people are locking us into this, Benny. I mean, you I and I, know. I think we're both kind of like, okay, we're going to keep doing this as long as we can. And now we're like, fuck, we can't stop. These people really care. <laughs> can't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. <laughs> so, yeah, you people are ruining my life. You're locking oh, me into fuck this. you, Brad. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm you're totally fun. lying. And especially... You get, you're literally staring at me right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, what's wrong with your day? It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful. Look at these gap, it's a beautiful these gap teeth staring you in the face. <laughs> Love uh, that gap, dude. Love there it. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to everyone. I really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed Frank episode. And keep an eye out uh, next week for another awesome one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>